to the new year. I hope everyone had a good holiday and is ready to get into 2015. 2014 was a good year for me. Uh, Tombs put out a new record called Savage Gold. Uh, we got to tour, do a bunch of touring, you know, play with Pelican, got to meet some new friends and Paul Bearer and Vatnet Viscar, and in general, I uh, felt like everything was kind of moving in the right direction in 2014. Kicked off uh, Savage Gold Coffee, which is my coffee company, and uh, yeah, everything seems to be going well. And I'm looking forward to getting into 2015. I got a lot of goals, a lot of things I want to accomplish this coming year. And um, one of which is to bring this podcast to you more frequently. It's with a great honor that I have my next guest, Joe Capizzi. And it's even cooler that this is the kickoff episode for 2015, a year that I have a lot of big plans for. If you're a fan of metal, you probably know Joe from bands like Cattle Press, The Dying Light, and a bunch of other killer bands. If you're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, you definitely know Joe because he's been competing on a regular basis for the last uh, two decades. And also, he has his Gracie-affiliated academy, New York City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee, my coffee company, which I started last year. For listeners of the podcast, you can get a a cool 10% off by plugging in Coffee Crew 2015 when you, on your next order for 10% off on everything. This podcast is also brought to you by Onnit, NatureBox, and Datsusara, my affiliate sponsors. So if you go to everythingwentblackmedia.com, you hit those links, you make a purchase, I get to wet my beak a little bit, and that's always nice. So I've been kicking this idea about having you on uh, for a while, Joe, and uh, I'd just like to thank you for uh, for being the uh, the sort of kickoff to the new year on the podcast. Oh, I, I see it as an honor, man. Thank you. You know, and, and um, aside from being, uh, you know, a, a sort of member, founding member of a lot of legendary bands, uh, you know, you're also uh, someone that's respected in the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, community, and... Uh, so this, you know, this whole podcast is very, uh, you know, sort of covers two of the passions in my life, which was, you know, music and martial arts. So, so I think awesome. you know, I'm pretty, pretty excited about this whole thing. Nice, man. Well, you just let him rip, bro. I'm, I'm down for whatever, man, you know? Cool. So you were, you were active during like a pretty, um, you know, pretty formative, very important part of uh, history. I, I, what I, well, the way I see it as far as, uh, you know, extreme music goes, you know, that sort of early 90s to late 90s period. Um, American death metal rise and... 
yeah, you know, type of stuff, you know. And also just the the sort of the way that like hardcore and more extreme metal sort of met and kind of created you know a new genre. So yeah, uh, it, it's crazy to look back at at the time. It just seems like that's was like the thing going on, but we really got to be part of like a, a birth of something that was like how we look back and say like how Black Sabbath was like that defining era and the Jimi Hendrix era and then like the Judas Priest I made in era and then like these later bands like Slayer and Metallica coming out and then like the next wave of like you know the the Florida death metal like Morbid Angel and stuff like that and for me it was just like the craziest shit and I, it, I had people pop up in my life it was like very strange like when I was like 12 years old and see me in a store and like look at me and be like why this young kids in the metal and tell me hey buddy go listen to these bands and go buy all these records and like you know I'm wearing like a, a rain and blood t-shirt and then the guy's handing me like a list of like celtic frost creator possessed coroner and i'm like looking at it i'm like you know none of my friends have ever heard any of these things before no one knows like none of this and i just have this messenger like basically like hand me this and it becomes like a, a cool friend in like the background of my life and then um being part of the whole Morbid Angel birth was was crazy. You know Dave Woody, right? Of course, yeah, he's a great friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, you appreciate this shit, bro? Because like, I met Dave on the like some like bizarre, like you know, like real like uh, how do you say like magical circumstances, so to speak. You know, um, I I meet somebody at a Voivod concert in Manhattan. They asked me like who my favorite band was because I was this you know young high school kid like at the, at the rock show. And I mentioned that it was like Morbid Angel and Sepultura. And some guys were like, oh, good answer, you know, like we represent those bands and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then they gave me their backstage passes to go meet Voivod and go hang out with these guys. And my friends were all like, what the fuck just happened that they, they handed this over to you? And I was like, I don't know. I just told them that I like Morbid Angel. And <laughs> next thing you know, these guys give me like the laminate passes and say, go, go meet the band. And I, I didn't think not too much of it. And then this girl that was part of our crew, she meets this guy there and becomes friends with friends with him, not me. And then one day this guy calls me up because of this girl and says, Hey dude, Morbid Angel's playing upstate New York and you know, uh, I'm friends with Angela and this was like this guy Mike Scalfani's ex girlfriend. I don't know if you knew Mike Scalfani back in the day, he was you know, one of the brothers from the pack, you know? Yeah. But um Angela's friend basically calls me up, not ever having formally really met me, and says, Hey, I'll come pick you up and drive you to a Morbid Angel upstate New York. And I'm like, you know, that would be awesome, you know? And then the guy shows up, does this, picks me and my friend up, drives us up there, and it's like Ripping Corpse, Morbid Angel. Um, Revenant was playing, and I got to meet the merch people from Morbid Angel, and then that led me into, like, meeting the band for the night, meeting Ripping Corpse people, and just, like, kind of being taken into the cult, like, right off, like, day one. And then this guy, like, disappears out of my life, and then eventually... I'm brought into this circle to work for Morbid Angel, and this is where I meet Dave Woody. We both get Ripping Corpse gigs as roadies to work on the Blessed Are the Sick Tour, and like, as the two of us are hanging out, we start swapping like, you know, musical ideas and talking, and eventually it's the Ayabora being created, which was this old band, Eviscerate, that would later fuse and become like half cattle press. Dave uh, would spawn human remains like while we're doing the uh, Eviscerate slash Ayabora project. It was just like a crazy time where like all the young musicians were kind of meeting like just out of high school and like starting to be able to be in a band and have a car and get to practice and do all that type of crazy shit, you know? 
Yeah, that was that's like uh, I, I always look at Jersey and like you know that sort of New York City, New, you know, New Jersey connection as being like like a pretty pretty pivotal uh, part of the country. You know, even you know even as far as bands like Rorschach and Born Against and oh know, fuck yeah, for sure, man. That's yeah. where Hot Air brings you know those guys background in to like to our metal circle, which was like you know kind of crazy. I was an extreme metalhead where everything had to be like death metal taken above and beyond, you know, like Slayer to Morbid Angel and that type of stuff, you know. And Javier brought in like this whole punk rock element where like I was, I wasn't a, a follower of that scene at that time. But as I got paired up with him, I was like, wow, these these guys like, you know, bring their own ruckus in their own way. And that opened me up to a whole new world. And I want to see like the English bands were more like that, like Napalm Death in the early days, Godflesh. It seemed like those bands had already made that fusion happen over there. And then the guys here were just doing it with, like, American attitude attached. And you know, obviously it's a bit fucking crazier than, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely Napalm, man. Because if you listen to that first, uh, you know, Scum, to me, it's, it's like, pretty, uh, you know, pretty much influenced by that old band Siege. You know, it's like, yes. I, listen, I listen to that record and I hear yep. a heavy yep. Siege influence on that. So they're pulling that sure. punk influence in. They owe, ro- they owe royalties. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when did uh, you met Eric Rutan around that time too, right? Um, yeah, actually, he was in, in, Rip, in Ripping Corpse at the time. And I met these guys the first day that I hung out with the Morbid Angel guys. It was an Altars of Madness tour in 1990. Uh, I forget the name of the place it was, but it was upstate in like Yonkers, somewhere like, or, or like a West New York somewhere, you know? But um, I met Rutan, Sean Kelly all these guys and this is when these dudes were all like really like cult like really like laying it on the line you know yeah um Trey and these guys were like setting the pace with like chopping themselves up every night and like it really felt like you were at a magical ceremony and the band was doing something different and the incense is being burned and like the pre-rituals before the bands you know and like it was just like it was a great time you know what was fucking burnt bro was I'm sure you went to Lemoore's and caught, like Sepultura on the first time they toured here, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I met the guys who had just started Suffocation at that time, and yep. they were apparently um, housing the Sepultura guys. And as we're talking to them out front, the guy's like, yeah, you know, I got this band. We're just about to do a demo called Suffocation. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, everyone's, like, naming a band Suffocation, right? Not Suffocation, but, like, a shun ending. I had, they had just put out the Incantation demo, yep. Immolation demo. And then Suffocation came out and <laughs> I, you just started to see like the trend for like bands getting namesakes, you know, and like what the whole scene was going to form around, like due to like the vocabulary and stuff, you know. That's what ultimately led to me changing the band Eviscerate to Ayabora was that I wanted to just break a little freer of what was happening in the genre where everyone had an A-T-E ending or an I-O-N ending to the band, you know. Yeah, sort of make yourself stand out a little bit more. For sure. I always thought that was sort of an interesting name. And apparently that, that's going to be released, right? Those four songs? Yeah, uh, Dave Woody is the main guy working on that right now. Um, they're just basically trying to decide the artwork. Who's going to get to redo the artwork? They were saying there were some issues with the uh, original Clive Barker artwork that they wanted to like revamp the layout and add some extra stuff to it, so... I told him I was just open for anything because at this point, you know, it just needs to see the light of day again. It, it'll look cool regardless, you know, that 
it'll bring up some good memories and all that type of stuff. So I, I'm not like uh, so fixed the way I used to be on this where like, you know, I would lose sleep over this shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's important that stuff gets out there, I think, because a lot of, you know, fans, yeah, you know, just I need mean, to hear it, you know, it needs to be part of history, you know? Totally. I, I think what fucked a lot of us band guys up back in the day is that we took too many stances in the band. Like, at least speak for myself, you know? Whether it's over art direction, music direction, lyrical direction, and um, even even knowing what's best at those times, I could see like the conflict that it causes in humans, and ultimately it makes a project just like completely die and have like no energy being brought into it, you know. So um, with the whole re-release of this, I, I was just like, let let it fly, you know. What other artists can step to the plate and take it as an honor and try to do outdo Clive Barker and do this guy's shit a step further, you know? Yeah. I don't draw it no more, so I can't really add anything to the picture on that one. So when did you, uh, what got you into uh, guitar playing? Kerry King. It all goes back to him, huh? <laughs> it always goes back to the master, bro. At the end of the day, it's like him and Jeff Hanneman are the guys that like just really set the tone to say like, I want to be like these guys and, you know, one day like tap into what they summon up and if I can't meet them then I have to meet the energy on my own time and just see what it is that makes that type of insanity possible you know um, it's awesome you know I can't thank the guy enough <laughs> yeah uh, and prior to that I want to say Iron Maiden was the first band I heard when I was like 8 years old and I wanted a guitar but I was like really poor growing up and couldn't you know, afford a guitar it's the expense of like trading that in for like toys for Christmas, you know, like get a guitar or, or get a whole bunch of other shit, you know? So when I was a teenager and got into Slayer, it was like, all right, I'm at a different stage of life. I'm not playing with like toys and I can now get this instrument possible and have this other like rebirth in life where like the kid dies and like this future whatever is born, you know? So you, you went basically from like zero to 60 by picking up Slayer songs and just starting to figure them out and just kind of working, you know, developing your style through, through uh, you know, sort of getting into Kerry King and, and uh, Hanneman and, you know, the whole Slayer back catalog, right? Absolutely, man. My first guitar lesson was at Lane Music and um, it was with this guy, Scott Bukowski, who was like one of these like old Jakey Lee, Vivian Campbell type guitar players. Yeah. And the first day of class, he was just like, all right, so we got this music book, but... um you know, what is it you really want to do? And I was like, I want to fucking learn Slayer songs, you know? And then the guy was like, all right, well, how about we just bust the tape out and do it right now? And like, nice. not even waste no time. And then I, he popped it in, listened to Rain and Blood, two seconds later was playing it, and that was like guitar lesson day one, you know? Let me and ask then, you a question, man. Do you, have you, have you revisited any of that old Ozzy material? Like, have you checked any of that stuff out recently? Yes, I, I practice, um, Bark at the Moon, like <laughs> nice. the jam to, and so much of that stuff is like so black metal, and so complex. It's like it just goes over kids' heads because they're not hearing like all the crazy screaming. But like musically, it stuff's fucking awesome. You know what I mean? Because I was always way into uh, you know the first two, the ones with Randy Rhodes on it. You know what I mean? Like Blizzard of Oz and Diary oh, of Madman. You know, and all that stuff's classic. You know, I, I want to say like everything up to that point in time, like where where J, you know Jake was in the band for me was was great. You know. And then then recently, it's like I only used to listen to those records, and then suddenly I just was like, man, you know what? I, I don't know what it was. I think I heard Bark at the Moon, the song on like 
you know, Spotify or it came up somewhere and then suddenly it just gave me like, like that sort of, um, you know, that bug to like go back and listen to like, you know, uh, you know, Bark at the Moon and No Rest for the Wicked. Yeah. And, and I checked that stuff out again, man. It totally holds up. It still, it still sounds pretty, pretty heavy, you know, especially, you know, for the time it came out. Yeah, those guys could play, man. Like, at the end of the day, like, they're going to perform that music really well where, like, as a player, we could appreciate it more and more. Maybe the band could have took a different artistic direction and got, like, more, you know, heavier for everybody. But it, they, I want to say, took the more commercial route for appealing. But at the end of the day, if even, like, good pop music is, is played well, it's, it's, you can't, can't slight that part of it, you know? Yeah, it's kind of funny, like... Our uh, our new drummer is like into a lot of uh, you know kind of hair metal from like the '80s, even even though you know he plays like blast beats and like double kick and everything. He he's kind of like sort of warmed me up to a lot of those bands, which I used to hate back in the day. It's funny, <laughs> man. Like, you know what, man? Like looking back now, that we don't have like a I want to say this false ideal in our head that we have to own up to how true we are that you couldn't even admit that you like a certain riff or a band or like a dude's guitar even just because he was in like a hair metal band and you were like an extreme metal guy I think everyone's past that stage now where you could just hear it with like an open mind and be like you know what I could see why it was successful I still like my Slayer better than I like Bon Jovi but you know a good song is a good song and there's a reason why those guys rocked out and did some really fucking crazy shit back in the day you know yeah so I'm just gonna run down some of the you know some of the stuff you you did over the years you know like uh, you know your involvement with Hemlock you know how'd that come about? Um, well, with Hemlock, I never got to do anything formally with these guys, recordings or releases. Uh, I played in a, in a in bands, multiple bands, where I shared all these guys as me- almost all these guys as members. Yeah, this, is where, this is where like I want to say that officially I've never been like. A, an official hemlock guy but I've been in a band with a combination of all those guys around the same time they're doing hemlock and playing similar types of music where like I wanted to say like it, it's just like a big jam circle at some point and when a few guys are at, at up at plate they call it a certain name just to like collectively call the ritual or something but there was a lot of bands and guys in our circle who were playing in a few bands where like we were just like sharing members like I was uh I had Brandon Thomas in the Dying Light, and I'm you know I'm doing the Dying Light and carry that into Cattle Press, and then Reno is in the Dying Light and he's in Cattle Press, and then Ed was in the Dying Light and Cattle Press, and now I'm in Dimock after all these years, and um still like you know contemplating like reunions reunions with these other old old guys and it's just musical chairs really like I want to say you could swap a guitar player out. Or a bass player, and you'd have like all these different bands pop up, you know. How how is it playing in in Dimock, man? Replacing Scott Ruth, I mean that you know that's he was like the longtime uh, singer, and you know working with with Sean Kelly must be you know pretty killer because that guy is like a very very well respected guitar player, you know. I mean everyone listens to him, and they're just like, what the fuck is this guy even doing, you know? Yeah, bro. All I can say is like, just being around the guy, you get better. Like you're playing gets better just like sitting in on practice and like jamming with someone like that like you just look at your instrument differently you, you see how like it's natural and that one with the guy is with the instrument like past all the gimmicks and all the stage antics where it's like there's like real control and mastery going on and like it's like training jiu-jitsu if you around Marcel Garcia or, or Henzo 
you're gonna get fucking better. You know what I mean? Like, unless you really have your eyes closed and refuse to participate, like by osmosis, you're gonna get better being there. And then the more you engage with them, just the more magical you're gonna get that much faster. Now, um, as far as like, uh, did you ever play in villains or was that just? No, that, uh, that's where Eddie, who played in Cattle Press with me and Lino and with me and Lino in the Dying Light, he were he has played in villains. Okay, that's as the guitar player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that's like that crazy, you know, sort of like incestuous like circle of, of dudes that all play in the same bands that we were talking about. Yep, yep, yep. So, are you going to do more material? Is there any more plans to do another Dimock record or? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a few songs for the next Denmark record already. And it's just a matter of like us ironing them out with like John Longstreth and like Sean bringing a few songs to the plate. I got a few songs I want to add in. I spent the last two years working on this DVD I just put out in Jiu-Jitsu, the Mastering the Guillotine. Yeah. And like that was like the main thing for the last two years that like I just like spent my time revising this concept and really working it down to finally what it, what it is, you know, now and released as... But that consumed a lot of my creative time where like I I had to be every person for the project, you know? I had to finance it, film it, light it, sound it, edit it, build the DVD menu, do the layout from scratch, like get it, distribute it, market it. It's like, it was like completely overwhelming that like, I wanna say like five or six different people like intentionally like for the last like two years, you know? So is that available now? So yeah, that's that's out and available now. You can get it on like Budo videos. Okay. Um, but for me to be able to like be creative now, it's like I got this weight off my chest where like once this ritual was done and closed up and was like officially printed, it's like out of my hands. Kind of like you go record an album and they're like, this is the final mix and it's being sent for production. And if there's any fuck ups in the layout or anything. If that's just how it's going to be for how many they're printing right now and that's just how it's going to go and as a band guy once that happens and you get your record you know there's nothing you can do about it no more and like, there's like a weight of burden relief from you you know and uh, I, I can't begin to say how much creativity I feel from doing the project and now having the room to actually do something where I know I don't got a deadline to finish and my project is being suppressed like everything's been set free and now it's just time to deliver some like really appropriate music for the t uh, sign of the time that's going on in the world right now, you know? One of the things I find interesting is you, you uh, a couple times in this conversation, you referred to, uh, you know, these creative uh, outlets as rituals. And, uh, you know, that's something that I, I kind of resonates with the way I approach, you know, music and pretty much everything else in my life where there's... It's not just a bunch of guys getting together, rocking out, you know, drinking beers or whatever. It's like there's something behind like everything you do, you know. And it's just like I find that's interesting because I, I kind of look at doing bands and you know practicing martial arts and all that sort of stuff, kind of in the same sort of in the same energy, you know, like the sort of same energy level. It's kind of all the same thing for me, really. Yeah, I I think of it as all the same. I used to tell my um, guitar teacher when I was in college that if, if I wrote a book on jujitsu and guitar playing, that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference of which one I was talking about because they all have the same concepts attached to them. You need to have like posture to be able to sit and play an instrument, like sit in position and play. You need to be able to like um, play all the different shapes, like get all the different grips, you know? Then the guys um, need to be able to sweep 
they need to be able to like like have like downstrokes, like upstrokes, like bottom game, like top game, like all these things that make a good musician good, like like attack and your tone, like these are all the things that make a good jujitsu player good. Like you're able to posture on somebody and like just like smash them like the way Marcelo or like Lucas Lepley does or you know any of these old school jujitsu reptiles that kicks in like it's it's all to me it's all the same, you know? Yeah, the repetition too, man. It's like you know, like yeah. drilling different techniques and absolutely and just the repetition of like, you know, mastering you know, even just rehearsing songs, if you're going to get ready to record, it's like you break it down just like you break down like a jiu-jitsu technique and you just sure. drill it over and over and over again until it's just part of your muscle memory. So there's there's like a meditation, like the sort of meditative like energy you kind of get into the more you do things over and over again like that. Definitely, man. When I first started jiu-jitsu, I was like the ultimate zero athlete where I never did any sports other than playing like manhunt outside with my friends. I bowled in a bowling league. I was like the smallest kid in school. I couldn't play on any like the teams because of how like, you know, just how small I was, you know? And then to top it off, I had like really long hair. So I looked like, like an ugly little girl where like, <laughs> it just really like set a tone where like, I wasn't like the guy for those outlets, you know? And then when I started jujitsu, the only thing I had like in my mind working for me was that like, I felt mentally strong and I knew that like, all right, well, I'm a musician and you know, these guys need good timing and the ideas of like flowing to be good at this sport. And I understand that conceptually, I physically can't do it, but I, I understand that much. And that means that as long as I can physically get in better shape, that I'll be able to like tap into that in jujitsu, you know, and then eventually you just start changing your life, your diet, your mind, and just keep refining it every year by year and find yourself in a different place, you know, eventually. When did you uh, start training? 95. And was that at Henzo's or a different, a different place? It was uh, the first American black belt in jiu-jitsu. Craig Kukuk was teaching in Manhattan on 25th Street, I believe, out of the Wumoy Kung Fu School on 25th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. And then um, he was there, and the guy was like, like a really like stern Western guy. Where I want to say he was like very like academic and like, he taught great jujitsu, but I never felt like the human connection to the guy. And right. jujitsu was very elitist at the time, where it was twenty-five dollars for the hour class. You paid exactly for the hour, and then got off the mats and had to pay it again if you wanted to train. Um, the guy who made me feel welcome day one was Matt Serra. He was a blue belt in the class, and he spoke to me and was like, "Oh, you know, fellow paisano," and you know, gave me the whole you know speech like that about how like his other like. Italians and jiu-jitsu and stuff over here. <laughs> so he made me feel more, more welcome just by kind of breaking the ice and saying that way. Like, you, I didn't have to be tough. It was like, hey, you, you're one of us, man. Like, well, you're at least, you're down with me because we come from the same background and I can help you get where you got to go. And he made me feel welcome where, like, I kept going back to jiu-jitsu. And then eventually Craig says, you know, in a few months, Henzo's going to come here and fight in the WCC. And then afterwards... He's gonna come start teaching here at the academy, and we're gonna like both run the school. And that's when like me and the guys in my band we were all doing jujitsu at the time. Ed Ortiz, who plays in all these bands from Cattle Press to Candiria, and you know fifty other bands from Sub Zero down. Like he's just in like every band. Yeah. <laughs> um, celebrity Murders. He was celebrity in that. Yeah, he's okay. in Celebrity Murders at the, towards the end. I think Eddie was in that band too. <laughs> yeah, he was in there too, man. 
He's in it. Vehement uh, Serenade, I know he did. <laughs> I don't even know that one, man. Yeah, that was actually fucking really good, man. Good music. Um, one of those, like, delayed releases due to politics where, like, I want to say if they would have just put it out when the band recorded it, it would have been more magical and, like, the band might have, like, did some damage in the scene, but, like, definitely go on YouTube and check out Vehement Serenade where, like, it's the singer from Earth Crisis singing. I don't know and what. I was never an Earth Crisis fan personally, but um, his voice on here sounds fucking really sick. Where like, I gotta say, when I heard him sing, this was like right before the Denmark record came out. I was like, wow, like this guy like stepped to the plate, man. Like he just up the ante. Where like I gotta like do some drastic shit <laughs> just to like fucking like if hardcore guys are like stepping to the plate, I gotta like you know try to do something, you know. But I would definitely recommend you go you go check it out. There's like Eddie plays on it and you could hear his influence. I think some guys from Full Blown Chaos and you know, I forget who the other guys are, but it was it was a cool release, but it well, you know, swallowed up into the background, you know? Yeah, have to check that out then. Yeah, I would say so. So now uh, at this point Henzo is in New York and you guys are all training at the school, right? And uh Yeah. And uh, this is like Enzo comes on board after he like beats up all these guys at WCC and then when he shows up it was like such a difference where I went from being like I, I felt like a burden in class where I would show up and be like damn like I'm making this, this guy work for his money that I fucking suck so bad you know as, a, as like a physical specimen and like just not even showing up with the proper like mind and body respect for jujitsu at that time in my life you know and then Henzo showed up and made everyone feel like a winner and a champion. And I was like, wow, this guy should, like, he don't even have to, like, talk to me. I, I, I'm, like, so, like, uh, little in his world. And instead, he went out of his way to, like, make us all feel so welcome. And then actually passed on his large size to us to, like, grow to catch up to his size. And, you know, there was, like, I can't say I got that magic from, like, anybody else in life. Um... It's the type of magic like when I was a you know as a kid like here in Slayer and I was like wow he plays BC Rich I gotta play BC Rich, you know this dude owns snakes I gotta buy like snakes and like be a reptile keeper and you know he looks cold I gotta like I gotta investigate the the occult even deeper you know and like what can I like bring to the dark lords that they don't already know you know or like try to like outdo them one you know yeah um sick. So, um, did you get your black belt from Henzo? Yeah, man. Uh, it took 10 years for me to go black belt. I was uh, four years blue belt, three years purple belt, two years brown belt. And then I was two years and 10 months as white belt. Where When I was going through my white belt stage, this is when I still had, I had long hair. I played in cattle press. I just started like cutting my hair shorter from its like, really long length just so I could do jujitsu with less overheating and vomiting and less ridicule in class and the guys laughing at me and making jokes and always being like the end of like, you know, people's laughter and shit, you know? And then eventually I got my, my hair just gets chopped shorter and shorter over time as I'm doing more jujitsu. And then one day I just had like the full life wake up where I woke up and was like, I'm stopping everything I do in life and starting over. Like I just, I'm, I'm going to die tomorrow intentionally, like have like a rite of passage and just be a monk and just commit myself to like, I demean the lion, the only way I could describe it, you know? And yeah. then from there, I went, had my hair cut off, 
uh, I was vegetarian. I stopped being vegetarian. I started eating chicken just to like increase like uh, my body's healing from what I learned jujitsu. We enrolled back in college. Um, I started playing my guitar again because I had only been playing bass for a few years that I kind of, like, I don't want to say like lost the hope completely, but it seemed like such a daunting task that everybody was getting better and I was not at guitar playing that maybe it wasn't my calling and that at best I could play this four string instrument, which I want to say I'm even worse at than I'm at on the guitar, you know, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And then, um, I, I started going to college and I switched my major and like, I decided that I'm going to go for music and all these entertainment classes and all this type of like, you know, film classes and photography and anything that pertains to me being creative and just take a stand in life and like, you know, live off student loans, which I'm still fucking indebted for now. And, you know, having to like pay the, the matrix for, <laughs> But I got to like go on like a like a really like cool renaissance and just learn. And then the student loans allowed me to pay for jujitsu. And then I would just fight jujitsu tournaments, pay for my studio band practice, and basically just be at college, band practice room, or jujitsu all day, every day. Um, this went on for like just years until I got out of college, basically. And my girlfriend, I dated long distance in Brazil where like we'd see each other like twice a year and she was in her tour studies and kind of like a, a selfish person for time too, you know, like likes her own time. Yeah. So like we were able to like really just explore our own time but still feel connected and it allowed me to just like do a lot of studies in college and in the band and learn how to play the guitar from scratch again and go to jujitsu and actually get my blue belt. And then from there, just fight my way through ranks over the years, you know, and changed my life. Now, do you think, um, you know, the sort of uh, long view that you have to have in jiu-jitsu, like, you know, a lot of people quit, like, after the first few months or the first year, and they don't continue because it's a very hard, like, out of all the martial arts, I think jiu-jitsu is probably one of the hardest ones to master because there's an infinite number of techniques and, you know, different schools of thought and all that sort of stuff. Do you think you know, the sort of discipline that you had to have to make it through that helped you, you know, in these other areas of your life. Oh, man, I, I had this talk with my students last night, a similar topic. We were talking about some, like, really, you know, heavy talks, and I said, like, if I said to some of the guys, like, excuse me for the, the you know, the heaviness of, like, this, this talk, you know, I was like, if I was just getting your money to teach you arm bars and guillotines, I feel like I'm robbing you guys, because the odds are that you're not going to go get into a street fight where you got to armbar or fucking guillotine somebody. But you're going to need to defend your mind and you're going to need to defend your existence with more ways than being in an actual fight. And the idea is that as white belt in jiu-jitsu, you think about it as, oh, I got to get tough and then eventually I get tough and I could like fight my way through problems. I want to say as you get higher ranked in jiu-jitsu and then go to the higher, you know, mid these ranks, ranks in black belt, more importantly, um, you see the fight outside jiu-jitsu is more important as the one on the mats because you're outside the mats all day long. And it's like, how are you using jiu-jitsu to analyze and problem solve every single thing you do, whether it's looking at language, looking at uh, contracts, looking at training, raising a family, you know, growing, you know, gardens, whatever the hell it may be. Like everything has to obey like this, like, real strict attention to the small detail, you know, where like the real, real magic lives, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, especially since, you know, jiu-jitsu is like it's a, it's a game of inches and angles and details, you know, it's in, and it, I know that's one of the things for me specifically that it helped me pay attention to the little things um, and appreciate the little things in life as well, you know, because, you know, whether or not you succeed or fail at a technique sometimes comes down to like these micro inches of, of leverage and, and position, you know, and it just sort of yeah. gives you a different perspective on everything. I, I, I did a bunch of work with, with one of the guys that I trained with. Um, he went black belt through me and Henzo. His name is Anthony Buckwoods. And as we've been, we were worked on this mastering the guillotine project, and he's like my like my uh, my calibration tool. He he knows me better than anybody else from like all the time we train, and like you know he's been my student since I'm purple belt. You know, um, we've been uh, correcting many moves about this little balance detail. Is usually where your eyes have to look to be in the future move, not in the present move that you're in. And it's like this, it's like a pickup note would be in samba. It wouldn't come on the downbeat where it'd be like too late. There's this quick pickup where like, once your eyes like look, you know, most of the time it's like to the guy's hips for all the times you're passing, let's say a top position, you know? Yeah. Once you look this way, your hips make like a whip, which is where we get like the sonic boom from and like all these like spirals in life moving at this pattern where you move at like the perfect like a waveform, so to speak, where you could just like move past people and like vibrate past them like in a magical way, you know? That's and getting back to like this infinite amount of moves of jiu-jitsu, um, we we're like also having this discussion like that, the same way we have like uh, the platonic solids, you know, and there's like, you know, five, six shapes that can possibly fit, you know, where like that's as many like, ways you really have to like you could crunch jujitsu down into that many shapes like no matter what it is you're doing like if that's how the laws of physics work for the rest of the universe then the laws in our sport don't work no differently and I've been proofing a lot of jujitsu moves with like actual like physics and it's helping make like a big change in the sport and like a lot of techniques I do and things I teach and not just script moves kind of like um on opinion where like it works here and then kind of don't work there. It's like, it has to be like mathematically sound that it works here. And then the concept transfers here and maintains the same math. And like, you're able to like keep this, like these shapes like consistent, you know? And then from there you start seeing a different pattern pop up. Then from there, like you start fighting jujitsu by theory against people, you know, coming in and going, okay, am I gonna have a good day or a bad day? You'll just know to get to certain checkpoints and you'll respect them as checkpoints in a, in a different mental way and commit to fighting for them more than just trying to do your move and not thinking about what the other guy may do as his move, you know? Damn. I got to leave. I have to, I have to analyze that whole thing, man, because that's just like... <laughs> that's like a, dev, a different level, man, than I, I think, of, uh, think of all this training on the rant. Did you guys have this talk after training or before training? This is, we've been doing this Mastering the Guillotine project for like the last two years. And what what kicked it off was like, I've wanted to do something for a long time. And then um, I had some success with the guillotine. And then as we, I started like trying to script my project that like being this massive encyclopedia for the guillotine, um, you know, I started writing the book format for it and really just like laying as much out of my brain as possible. And then it just seemed like a, like a big, big bit of information where I started to s start screening it between like top and bottom position 
like moves like belly up or belly down just to organize all these guillotines and then from there I thought about like shapes like all right we'll have a cupping guillotine and a flat hand guillotine so it can teach how you could use this basic geometry to build everything the same way the universe is built and then from there like we start you know looking into like new energy forms like free free scale energy and then guys like Brooks Agnew, Michael Tillinger, I, I watch a few lectures and they're talking about how scientists are working on these formulas where things like a rotating coil and using vortex math to create free energy, free energy like Nikolai Tesla did. And as I'm watching these guys speak and lecture about how free energy works, that you put a little bit of energy into the system and you can get a perpetual motion out or at least put, let's say, 10% uh, effort in and get 100% effort back out like it started making me think of this this thing they teach us in jujitsu. It's all about technique, you know. Don't use strength. And I, I start thinking that like these things just aren't translated well. And in the big picture, like you could say it's kind of a Zen way of saying it, you know, to use just like the the technique that way, you know. But to be like totally specific, like and dial everything in down like to the math, like like totally changes everything, you know. Um, and these guys who do the free energy, like you know when you you first sweep somebody, when like in your blue belt, and you, like, when you're about to get your blue belt, and the guy falls over, and it pulls you up, and you're like, wow, I just levitated up to my feet. And yeah. You, the, the guy fell and he pulled you up. You caught a free scale energy ride, that that guy fell and picked up your body and pulled you up for the ride. And when we experience it in jujitsu, like physically you know what that magic means to like levitate like no I, I felt like you know free form the guy pulled me up and I could have like dropped back down again with gravity and just sent shot past in the way a satellite would in space like around to get a, a different orbit you know and um just it just just changes stuff you know you start seeing all the moves and all these ideas of like how to even view the sport it was like totally different um Everything I try to do now is to like fit in as best as possible where I can control like the vibration state, like, you know, tuning two instruments together. And then from there, how do you hijack an energy ride and not have energy waste where you're going around the course the wrong way? Like know the algorithm for the guy's style you're fighting. If you're fighting somebody from the Mendes Brothers school, you have to play with your feet on the outside of their feet. You can't walk into the half guard. You can't have any entanglement at all. Um, if you play Marcelo, as you can imagine, the guy's gonna go single leg X guard or sit butterfly guard on you, you know? Yeah. Um, if the guys are training at Henzo's, they're gonna use the shin guard and play some like, um, I wanna say maybe some like open guard slash spider guard against you. But you know there's like a certain map to do to solve each of these guard shapes. And if you don't obey the map, you'll fall exactly into those traps, which are basic mistakes once you understand the map, you know? Wow. Yeah, it's like differential equations almost where, you know, there's like only a finite number of solutions to these like sort of equations that are presented to you. You, you know, you know Bernardo Furry is, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. He's at uh, Marcelo's now. Yeah. yeah. Like, he does a move that he plays deep half guard and he puts both of his arms underneath the guy's legs. And then he'll use the inside leg as a hook and the outside leg over the top so that you can't get knee barred. And what he's doing is playing underneath the body fully where like, He's playing a, a double unders behind the lines, but he knows he's not subject to any attacks from there. And he can commit to his moves because he knows he's in a mathematical space where 
he can't be attacked right there. He can't do submissions himself, but he's willing to give that up to fight for a balance mistake, which can land him on top where he can then score points and then go into a submission, you know? Yeah. Um, if somebody arm drags you and wants to take your back, you can just grab both of your arms and shove them underneath the guy's legs and hug his you know, inside leg. And the guy can't jump on your back or even choke you no more. Because you retreat to this meth spot where like those those spots like save you from certain problems, you know? And once you start knowing those codes in jiu-jitsu in a few different places, and knowing that there's like a one definitive best move to like get you out of problems that has like the best probabilities for like surrounding moves, you're not falling victim to them, you make sure you learn all those type of moves so that you're always playing by the books when you're being threatened. And then you can be creative all the other times when like you know you're in command because you haven't fallen victim to any one of those specific concepts in any of the major, major positions, you know? Yeah. Have you been uh, following Metamorris at all? Have you been watching any of those? Yeah, man. I, I try to support these events and, and watch them and pay for them. Um, I, I think it's great that these guys are getting paid money. I would love to fight that stuff myself, you know? Yeah, totally, um, man. Did you see that last one uh, with uh, Mateo against uh, Vinny Bagales? Yeah, man. Like, Mateo's a tough dude. Oh, yeah, man. He's a beast. He's a really tough dude, and like, I, I knew that wasn't a dude to sleep on, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think he did, he did a great job against Magalhães, and especially since he was outweighed by, like, what, like 20 or 30 pounds or something in that, in that match. You know, yeah, those guys train so hard and have that youthful vigor right now that, like, that 15 pounds, 20 pounds ain't going to make no difference. I really think, once you're, like, 180 pounds, I want to say you could really take on anybody. Like, Marcelo was at that cutoff weight yeah. where... The guy, when he was like, you know, walking into the absolute, like hydrated, like 180 pounds, he's going to hang with anybody. Power is not his problem in those departments. It's going to be straight up timing, technique, and like controlling distance, you know? Have you, um, you've been, you've been, you know, you mentioned Matt Sarah earlier, you know, and, and, uh, you know, one of our proud, uh, native New Yorkers, uh, former, former, uh, you know, welterweight champ, BGSP, you know? Um, yeah, I'm a fan of his as well. And also, what, what, how, do you, how do you feel about Chris Weidman? Oh, the guy's a beast, man. The, the, the crazy thing is that I heard this guy's name for years, and I never met, I never met him. And uh, he's one of these guys, I think, that's been wrestling out in Long Island for a long time. And, you know, they, they saw him as, like, one of those future prospects, like Buchecha. When Buchecha was, like, purple belt, they were calling him, like, Hojinho. And people, and they were going like, yo, this is the guy who's going to beat Roger one day. And people were like, you crazy, this, this kid's going to beat Roger? And they're like, of course it's not going to beat him now, but like, this is his nightmare in the future. And the coaches could tell when you get a guy who's got the potential to be that person, you just still got to then live up to that potential and train like a savage. And if you then do it, you could then potentially be that guy to dethrone the champion, you know? But um, Weedman, it came from this like same like rumors in the background and then when he finally surfaced, it was like, wow, he's fighting at a high level in the UFC. Like, I've never seen this guy fight before. And I think it was he took on Damian Maya on, like, short notice. Yeah. And when he won that fight, right? Yeah, he's undefeated in uh, in, in the UFC. Yeah, and, like, I, Damian Maya is, like, one of my favorite jiu-jitsu guys. Like, in sports jiu-jitsu, like, whether it's gi, no gi, Abu Dhabi, or, like, fighting MMA, like, he's a guy to me that embodies, like, what all the original guys, like, uh, Henzo Gracie and like Half Gracie and like Fibro Gazelle back in the day, like 
all like the old timers or like Hexen and you know the Hika Machado crowd, like mm-hmm. all, like all the like the original street guys. He he brings that, you know. Yeah, Weidman's a beast, man. And uh, I I was uh, I think he's going to be champ for a while. Actually, I don't really see too many people taking him out. You know, you know, I I, I agree the same way, man. I, I don't think that it's going to be a a fight issue that's his problem. I want to say the problem that's going to be for him is the same problem for many of these guys. The thing I think that will affect all these guys who are champion is that they train so hard and do so much damage to their body with so much psychic and so much physical energy that the body is getting destroyed at like such a deep level that it gets beyond repair at a certain point where like, you know, the guys in training and all of a sudden like, you know, knees are popping and needing surgeries, shoulders are popping, needing surgeries, and then the neck's going and needing screws. It's like, there's just so much pressure from space time and the mind and like synchronizing like all these different bodies into one place to be that type of superhero. You know, you've got to connect to a different place and dial it in with the flesh that's here now and then pull this ritual off at all times. And I want to say, like, it damages people, you know what I mean? Like, But Weidman's already had a bunch of different uh, injuries recently. Yeah, and he's a young guy, man. He's a young dude with awesome genetics. And I want to say that to be put under that much pressure is like, you know, like the Large Hadron Collider. They're going to smash energy so hard there that, like, it's going to destroy the machines itself in the process. And that's just, like, how powerful the energy is. I mean, that's that's how much what a savage this kid is. Like, you know, like... Anderson Silva hits him and, like, is breaking his own bones. And I know that feeling, man, where, like, there was this guy named Hanat Mirskabo who trained at Henzo's. I don't know what he does now, but he's this crazy Taekwondo guy that would, like, throw, like, 720 kicks and, like, always put a freak show on for people. Guy would fight anybody. He was a total, total beast, you know? But one day in sparring, like, my wrist banged into his wrist and my arm went numb with, like, an electrical feeling that, like, I never felt before. It went, like... Like a cold electrical feeling, like the way like aluminum on a cavity would feel. Huh. And I was like, wow, hold on, man, time, you know? And like, I was like, I've never felt that type of pain before. Like, my bone was gonna like explode. It feels like my arm feels like awful right now. I gotta stop training, you know? And then one of my pitbulls did this to me a few years later, like, ran past me with his mouth open. And when he banged my hand, he gave me the same feeling. And then a few years later, I guess from you know, overtraining and getting like guys, you know, smashing my head into the floor and attacking me for tournaments. Um, I started getting those like patches on my head where I felt like somebody was like plugging an electrical socket on like part of my head. And then I'd have to go for like these like massages to like relieve the electrical grid on my body so that I wasn't having these like short circuits where like, it just felt like somebody was like zapping me with like like a voltage to my skull. It was like, this is crazy, man, you know? Yeah, you know, I believe in all that stuff too, man. It's like, I, I are you familiar with the artist uh, Alex Gray? Alex Gray. Yeah, it sounds so familiar. He does these like crazy, like psychedelic, um, like real tryptamine influenced, uh, you know, pieces of art. Actually, if you, if you're familiar with the band Tool, like a lot of their, they, they yes, use, yeah. yes, yes, like a lot of his artwork deals with like these energy meridians, like throughout the body and connecting to like, you know, the universal energy and. Sure, man. Like, I totally believe in that, because I, I was injured a, lot, a couple of years ago. Um, I had a torn meniscus, and uh, I, I tried to, I dealt with it mostly through acupuncture, you know, and, and getting, uh, you know, myself balanced through, through you know, 
having my energy meridians like manipulated and increasing blood flow in my knees and things like that. You know, that as well as like physical therapy, uh-huh. um, just by, you know, working the, mu- working the surrounding muscles. And I didn't have to have any surgery at the time. So yeah, I was, I, man, dude, I've been fucked up over the years, man. Just like to put it out there, like straight up, you know, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you if you, if you had to deal with, I've been, I was going to ask you if you had to deal with any injuries. Man, bro, I, I, I've been into the belly of the beast and back where like, you know, my healers, I owe, I owe them my life and my soul, bro. We're like, uh, I don't feel it's my life no more. Well, my existence is a shared existence through several people where everything I have, do, know, love, and cherish is because of a few specific people who have made my life possible to me to operate physically for where I could live, for the space for me to be in, um, for the like ability to heal my body, to like, be able to create babies, like... And then all I can say is like it's like these people popped in my life just like getting in a car ride to go see Morbid Angel the first time. And then while everybody's chastising the band, like, you know, who's meeting them going, hey, man, you know, I write you letters and you, you dudes don't fucking write back. And then the guy that shows up and goes, hey, man, I got my letter with me, bro. These guys write back to people, you know, like, you know, we write up together all the time. And then like I'm buddy buddy with the band, like out the gate and hanging out with like Dave and Trey and all these dudes and welcome into the black circle and it's like I have this in the jujitsu world now like with with all these experiences and like it's just wild you know like I honestly I would don't know where I would be if Henzo never decided to give up the comfortable life that he lived in Brazil with you know all the hot bitches and beach parties and fighting and all this stuff that like you know he's a young dude like just going crazy down there and he was willing to just get up with a vision to come here and then say, fuck it, like, I'll make it better than it is there where those guys don't want to be here. And then we'll all be able to just go back and forth and go everywhere else and, like, really grow as, like, you know, as magicians, you know? And I, 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 I want to say, like, maybe I would have kept playing music or my mindset would have been very localized in life. But they were him coming here, like, I have like a an international family now. Like my wife's from Brazil, her family's from down there. Like um, I've gone to college because of jujitsu. That made me return to college. I've played in bands. I've done like DVDs and albums and all types of stuff. Like I've, I've got a library of books that is massive. That I never read a single book until I heard Henzo tell the people on public, "Yeah, you know, uh, I read for like two hours a day." And I'm thinking like, damn man, like, like. I, my jujitsu sucks and like my guitar playing sucks <laughs> and like I suck in school I'm like and this guy fucking reads two hours a day I'm like god damn like what the fuck you know like, like I gotta just like do something like miraculous and like get with the program and that's when like my the two books that I want to say were inspired by Henzo Anthony, uh, Henzo and Trey thought was getting into Aleister Crowley and Anthony Robbins at one time and getting into those two guys at the same time, like, you know, Anthony Robbins is like an easy read where he's just like basically like giving you the pep talk to be like, you know, they'll fuck everybody else basically that's ever had anything to say. We need haters and it's just fuel for the fire and we got a battle plan. Let's figure out how humans work. And then from there, we could manipulate them and do whatever we got to do with them. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Anthony Robbins. Like, what, what books has he written? Like, I'm... Um, Unlimited Power, Awaken the Giant Within. He's one of these like, you know, power motivational speakers yeah okay and i gotta say like he's the guy that awakened the giant within me 
to do all the things I've done since I've left high school, where I, I, I want to say like I encountered magic since I was a little kid of three, four years old and had an in-tune awareness to things in the universe where, you know, I was renouncing religion at like four years old where I was like, I don't want no cross and I don't believe in this stuff. You know, there's aliens and I'm into Star Wars and I have like a, a different feeling that there's, there's got to be life out there. If they're making movies about it, it's because that they know something, you know, and what you're thinking is just localized and that's like the real secret that's being hidden, you know? And then this carries through my whole life and I meet all these other magical people like right as like new scenes are being born. I'm like pulled into the death metal scene. I'm pulled into the jujitsu scene at, at its birth. The UFC doesn't even, like, just like barely existed like that when I got into like um, jujitsu, you know? And then like that it went underground and came back out and there's like a billion dollar industry and like jujitsu is popular now and like you could have a career in it. It's like, it's just wild, man. Like no one expected this. You know? Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that. Is because um, at the time you, you got into jiu-jitsu, like you just said, um, you know, the UFC and MMA in general, like no one. Re- I mean, it was like a super, super underground thing. You know, yeah. it was almost like being in, in like porno or something like that. You know what I mean? It was like some. No one knew what to make of it. You know what I mean? So sure. jiu-jitsu was like no one even knew knew about jiu-jitsu back then either. So how did you find out about it? Like, what was it your? Was, uh, it was funny you say about like you know jiu-jitsu and porn. Is that the UFC used to advertise for the for the first events in Playboy magazine, <laughs> and these guys were interviewing like Corey and Gracie and Art Davies and all these you know early guys like that like I think Art Jimison and some other guy who was like crucial in like forming these events, and those guys would get like a page write up and then like have like a one page ad in there where like one of my students who who breeds like pitbulls, he sends me a text message one day and he's like bro look what I found in my collection and I'm like holy shit man he's got like the UFC, like, two promo inside, like, a Playboy magazine. <laughs> like, I was like, wow, bro, you should, like, put, you know, let us pang this in the school or something, you know? And um, they knew that that's the a type of extreme culture they had to reach out to, you know? Guys that, at the end of the day, want to see, like, sex and violence. The same guys that want heavy metal, sex and violence. I mean, you, see, I'm sure you see it, bro, like, as a heavy metal guy. All the promoters who run their fucking fight scene, all the, the companies and all the logos and all the brandings and labels... It's all a bunch of heavy metal stuff converted for guidos. Yeah. And like, I want to say like bootleg guidos, you know what I mean? Whether it's like, you know, people from any other place around the world that like identify with that like type of subculture where like, they were just stealing the metal look, bro. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, all the rash guard designs, it's like skulls and, you know, like yeah. super metal like imagery and everything, you know, it's, it's definitely. This symmetric logos with the outlines, like tap out. It's like, that's like a heavy metal logo. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like all out war like logo it looks like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> you, you just see like so much stuff after a while, like like the I one thing that's cool is at least metal militia, like it, it's like I hope they give credit to the guys in Old Bridge, New Jersey for like, you know, the guys who really started the metal militia <laughs> and helped Slayer get the rise to power, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's what I you know, it's funny, when I first heard of that heard the you know the that apparel company, I thought of the same thing too, you know. Yeah, like the five one six metal militia club. <laughs> they want their dues. So let's get back to this DVD, man. So you you were like it's pretty much like a almost like a DIY kind of like situation where you were like the mastermind behind the whole thing, right? Yeah, man. And like what I did was um, I put it out and just got it out there, and then I'm revealing now to the public like how things were done like, like an interview like this like the first time on my you know hitting like a podcast 
and saying like, yeah, you know, I'm basically the guy who was had to go schizophrenic and be every dude involved in the production and like be in control of all these things. Like, and for me, it was like being in a band again where I'm like, all right, you know, you want something done right, just do it yourself. If you don't got the money and don't want to have to like have to ask somebody for help where like then their opinion is warranted because they're helping and they want to add their input. And then like, I'm like, that just brings the wrong energy into the mix. I'm like, I'll just take more time and I'll learn how to do all this stuff. And then maybe one day I'll film other people, you know, but, um, I'm really happy that I did what I did because I learned so much more jujitsu watching, filming and editing my own project and being responsible for all this stuff that like, I feel like my antenna for like being aware of these factors in the environment now, like, What's the lighting in an environment that I'm gauging my depth perception in a different way now because I'm thinking about a filmed event? What's the sound quality in the room? How does that help my self-defense you know, mechanisms? What's my technique? What's my opponent's technique? Is he doing perfect math? Where like, you know, is somebody gonna scrutinize my math in the DVD or are they gonna scrutinize the guy I use on the DVD's math? And like, you know, I had like several things happen where like, We'd, we'd go back a few times that we had this luxury of being the, the, the filmers and the artists involved, me and my, you know, Anthony, the other black belt, where like a, we made like a postural mistake or some type of like, you know, error out of being tired from like choking each other or him choking me and me defending it. Like, like we could like make everything perfect. So a viewer sees this and like, it's just perfect math, like every step of the way. It's like none of the, the laws of like what we're teaching get violated to make a different technique possible, you know? So you actually did the actual physical editing on, on the DVD too? Like you were... Yeah, man. I, I, went, I bought Final Cut for my MacBook. I bought Compressor with the compressing program. I got uh, Encore, which was the DVD menu building format. And then basically spent the summer watching tutorials and learning how to use all these projects. And then just trial and error, like assembled my DVD. Like a guy would say, hey man, like I could play the drums, bass, guitar, and sing and write the lyrics and I got a recording console and a microphone and I'm going to have to just do all this shit myself and then I'll submit the final tape when I'm done of everything. That's impressive, man. Cause that's, I know, I know a lot of people that, you know, are, are involved in doing editing and post-production and all that. And it's, it's a time consuming, uh, very tedious uh, task. So to, to undertake all that stuff on yourself is, is very impressive. I'll admit this out openly. I, I told this like, to the guys that like Matt, I told a seminar Matt Serra's recently, like for mastering the guillotine. And I was like, listen, you know, I did all this stuff on the project where like this thing came out, and even though it's so new, it was released to me in my hands from uh, the the pressing plant at the end of September. I needed a break from it where like this thing consumed two years of my life, just like conceptualizing it and writing it and then filming it four times and going through all these revisions where like. I, I, I just had to like not do anything attached to like marketing this thing or anything. And um, once I was able to like say, okay, I got a breath of fresh air. Then I ended up reaching out to the Budo video guys. And these guys have an exclusive right now where like they basically sell my DVD with like no opposition from anybody. Like where, you know, it's on a major platform and, you know, I'd rather have it there where everyone can see it and access it from a reputable source than me to do what I did when I was in a heavy metal band and go, you know what? I'll pay Eric Rutan $6,000 and go record the Dying Light record and then I'll negotiate with a record label on my terms and they can either like 
do exactly what I want or like fuck off basically, you know? And then all the record labels are basically like, all right, bro, like you got it covered. So like, fuck you, do your own shit, you know? And it, but they, if they're not going to profit from it, like why do they want to help the project? Why do they want to help build me if they can help build 10 other jujitsu fighters that they're going to financially gain from? And I want to say this is a, a jujitsu technique that I'm correcting a mistake I made in my life with a life mistake was when I was a musical artist. I didn't understand that you have to play the game sometimes oh, if yeah. you want to be part of the industry. Otherwise, you could I could put a DVD out and be the you know greedy hog and put out my own website and undercut everybody, and then all the media, the big media, you know, uh, martial art outlets are gonna say, "Well, do it yourself, dude." Yeah. Don't expect reviews from us. Don't expect help from us. This has got to be a symbiotic relationship where like you know for like choking dudes and teaching how it's done we get the dvd out to millions of people as an option for them to buy they can buy it or then maybe they don't buy it but we can make that option better than anyone else can that's where like their value comes in and their good reputation comes in as like you know who treat their clients really well and have great servicing options you know and um i i think a lot of us would have been more successful back in the day with our bands where we would have had to sacrifice a lot of our early integrity and our art concepts because you know we were all got robbed by these heavy metal record labels, whether it's Earache Records, Noise Records, fucking you know Peaceful Records, Nuclear Blast. They're all robbing us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of our of our rights to the ownership of our songs, but they would have made us into like uh, creative giants, and then it would have just been our task to keep growing and get bigger. And I think for most guys looking back their egos got bigger. And then that's why the songs started sucking more. Because dudes were like, well, I expect more and I want X, Y, Z. And they just get like kind of burnt out rather than just going, you know what? Let me look ahead a few years further and just kick out some good things and then see myself as a whole new evolution from there and then be able to branch out into whatever it is they want to do and like have a longevity. And a lot of us don't have that from back in the day. We were part of a lot of great times and cool rituals that were done at CBGBs and recording records at different places, but we never got like paid and had like this real, I want to say like, um, when, it, when the dictionary is listing who are the faces of the scene, we're not, we're not there, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's interesting, man. It's like, that's a really interesting way of looking at it because there is a, a, a definitely a lot of a, you know sort of an analogy between releasing you know a martial arts DVD and putting out records and sort of you know the whole idea like being in a band and doing press and like kind of playing the game with the label and all that other stuff you know and a lot of like in a younger phase of my life I probably would have seen that stuff as being like you know selling out or like you yeah know, for sure. You, you would never do it and I got this problem to this day like with my jujitsu school and, and my DVD where like I, I feel awkward pushing my DVD or even teaching jujitsu because I love it so much I love my, my work and my own math so much that like I don't think that I have to like whore it out where I feel like I'm compromising its integrity by whoring it out and then I'm like I'm sitting on it like the same way like the Dying Light records you know someone will say like oh you know we really like those records back in the day they're hard to find and I'm like, man, bro, I got a box with like 30 copies of like the original vinyl that I never sold because, you know, I didn't like whoring my own band's records. Why it was terrible that we put our own records out. Like, we couldn't be that person. We're the artists. 
We need someone else to handle that lifeless part of the ritual where they collect false money for some real artwork. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It wasn't in our nature to be that guy and solicit cash for that. And like, I want to say we chased the party just to keep ourselves from being that person. And then that was also a means of like destroying our, our careers those times too, you know, that you get deemed as irresponsible as opposed to being, you know, very like professional at those stages, you know? And I saw that as a big difference where like bands like Dillinger Escape Plan came on, came along and those guys, you know, they were very, very professional. And to a lot of us like street guys from New York who were like hanging out and like, Lower East Side or Staten Island, like in the streets, like you know, being like, you know, metalhead punks, like doing like stupid shit. We're like, wow, these guys are like really clean cut and like seem like like you know good guys. And then they're going on stage and performing at a very high level, and then they're holding themselves to a very high level, and then they're succeeding at a very high level. And then you're kind of like, huh? But we party harder, and we're more. We say we love our art more than those guys do. And display our love for our art by doing, you know, kind of random stupid shit just to, <laughs> to show how much we're in love with the rituals we do, you know? But, like, I see those as mistakes looking back in those years, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally, man. I mean, they Dillinger's always, we're always pro, man. Ever Since the first time I saw them, they always had, like, a very professional sort of yeah. attitude, you know? And, and I think that served them all these years. I, I agree a thousand percent, man. I got the like, utmost respect for the guys, you know what I mean? Like, and... I'm like really happy that those you know guys were able to like break through the way they did. And when we recorded the Cattle Press record, we were at uh, Traxies when Steve Evans was there. Yeah. Right, right before he went big time, you know, like we were the last band he recorded for like three thousand bucks. And then right afterwards, he was working with like Colin Richardson, getting like thirty thousand. And then people were like, Hydrahead Records too was like, holy shit, bro, we got like a thirty thousand dollar record for like three grand. <laughs> and then me and Ed are like. Yeah, bro. Oh, fuck, man. Like, so we signed just to, like, get the record paid for. <laughs> and then, like, you know, it, it sounds great. We got a, an amazing engineer and, like, all the name attached and it's, you know, mixed by the right guy. It, like, you know, like, you know, plays up in Boston and all this type of crazy shit. But we didn't, like, prosper from this at all or any extra budget. But we got a cool project. And he, I, I, I mentioned to him, like, but the Dillinger guys, I was, like, you know, trying to just, like, like pick at the armor of these guys and see like there's gotta be some like some tricks going on in the background because these guys are like too tight and the music that he's playing was for their new album he goes look this is what we just recorded check this shit out and I'm like how many takes did that take and he goes nah this nigga did this in like one take bro <laughs> I'm like what do you mean one take and he goes yeah bro Ben Ben, ben just played that stuff like that that's not like different guitar tracks he just like he toned his volume down and he's just playing and in my mind I'm like Wow, like, like that's, I couldn't do that, and I'm thinking like that because I'm in the scene longer, and I'm, you know, have some different obsession with like Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman in my whole life that like, that that stuff should be easy to do, and then to hear it like pulled off like that, no gimmicks attached, freeform by the engineer himself who is a musician, high level player, Steve Evans, I I respect it was really like wow, like, these guys are a new like breed of like disciplined players where like they're not there for the hangout the black magic rituals or any of that type of shit attached to it they're there strictly to perform like their interpretation of this music whether they're just caffeine kids or fucking whatever else you know what I mean 
But I gotta say, like, it, it blew my mind at that point that dudes could not be evil and yet be so extreme. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, definitely. And the thing that get, that always kills me when I think about Dillinger is they're they're playing music that is pretty much like very very non-commercial, yet they're taking it to a totally broad you know spectrum of people that are into them. You know? Yeah. I- they're taking all these influences we, you know, I want to say that guys like us have had over the years, and I, I want to say that as disciplined musicians and that as disciplined humans, it's just getting out there on a different level, and the consistency is 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 I want to say is utmost importance. You know, these guys know like, okay, so you were a really good white belt when you started jujitsu. You were like better than the average white belt, and then you get your blue belt, and they're like your potential for your blue belt is like really good. You could be like a world champion blue belt. And then it's like, all right, so you're a world champion blue belt, but you you suck next to a purple belt world champion. And then like, if you can become that guy, and then become the brown belt guy, you really start seeing your potential if you stick with it. Like these bands that can fight through a few records and like really make that magical mark happen. You know, for some bands, it ain't always the first record or two. Sometimes it is like several records into your career where like the guys just hit it, and before you know it, it's like. They, they always seem like they were big because they've always been there and they're finally just getting paid, you know? So, um, where, um, like, we want to talk about the Academy a little bit because, uh, you know, I'm sure... Oh, my... Yeah, man, let's, let's get into that. Yeah, my school is uh, in Staten Island. Uh, I run a Hensel Gracie affiliate school, Hensel Gracie, Staten Island. My school was called NYC BJJ for a long time and uh, it was originally just called Team Hensel Gracie, Staten Island. But I recently had like a party with one of my with my business partner, and um, I want to say like it was just one of those things where like uh, what I want to do for just teaching jujitsu and you know just the way like we both had an involvement like it was like a, a natural evolution where the two of us kind of like grew apart, and my school's going to transition to just Capizzi BJJ in, in this new year now, and um, we just run jujitsu full time for for adults and like for kids I teach like some striking for these guys too. But um, I'm really trying to raise better humans and making them thinkers and understanding like biomechanics and how the human body and brain work, so that they can like self-medic their jujitsu and like be a new species of jujitsu fighters, not just guys like who are scared learning techniques to be a little less afraid. I want them to kind of be like Neo in the Matrix, just like kind of like like parting parting walls with their minds, you know. And then when they just grab the gi or roll, they're just fighting purely by like high level math and then they could just like speed the math up to like move past people and stuff you know um i it's all i do personally i don't do any other things other than teach jujitsu and like my science work on my own time at home and raise a family uh it's a great time i, I gotta say like, i feel blessed to have like all the the guys i have around me like that you know work for me the guys i get to train with and some of the parents that i've met along the way are like some of like the funnest people I have in my life right now, like you know, um, you wouldn't think of this as like when you go about teaching, but I want to say like that I don't play in a band no more. I don't have that like social time to sit in a room with a few people, like and in between songs, like or after a few songs you take a break. You guys may talk about some life events or some philosophies or like any type of like history and related to the times and your coming of age and whatever passing events that are happening in your life, you know. And um, I started encountering a few parents that are like 
down with some of the stuff that I'm down with on like the science end and the, you know, like learning like the old ancient, you know, sciences, the occult, whatever you want to refer to it as, you know, and like, you know, modern day physics. And we get into some like really heavy talks where like I get to speak to them in a fashion that like I couldn't even speak to like no one I've ever known in my life that I've played in heavy heavy metal bands with and all the people who were like, you know, cult members that we've, you know, have been around all the years that were in certain bands and were notorious for doing certain things and, you know, were like revered for being whoever, you know, they you know were for that type of realm of work, you know? And to get to have some of the talks now with these like intelligent people where like, I'm like, wow, these other guys were like such low level magicians after all. Like these other people, are, their minds are so much more powerful like these accomplished professionals who also understand this like ancient science and like what's kind of gone on in the history of planet Earth, you know? And uh, I gotta say, like, I really love that part of like uh, my job, like some of the fr the friendships I've made, you know, where I have like bonds with my students, where they're, like uh, I do like jujitsu camps. I don't know if I do jujitsu school does this, but like when the schools have off, I host like a camp where like, parents pay like you know a fee for the day, and their kids come do jujitsu from like nine o'clock to five o'clock. And we'll like train for a few hours on like different concepts for the day. We do lunch and then we come back and like we'll have like geometry lessons and like, you know, relate that to like the Kabbalistic tree of life and how that oh, pertains wow. to computer science. And then we'll like start decoding the alphabet numerically and showing how everyone's named after the year and, and a messenger and all this type of stuff like that. And then I'm just like, you know, I start doing all this work with these kids and I let them know that, you know, I had these feelings for wanting to know this as a kid. And it took me till I was almost in my mid thirties to really access this type of information to satisfy what was on my mind when I was like a child. And, you know, I feel like I need to just offer it to you guys right now and present it in a way that's like, you guys can just get control of this magic and move past billions of people with your mind in an instant and know that you'll see in your studies going to school that no one you're around will ever encounter these discussions in this format and you will know how much different you understand things than everybody else that no one else is in on this and then you're gonna wonder well only the people who made this type of stuff up and their people are in on this and it's like yeah those are the people who are running this reptilian kingdom that we're all a part of you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like you were, you, you were if we had been on video Skype what I had planned to do, like, uh, you got a piece of paper over there? Yeah. Let me just, uh... I, I could do something for you, like, over... Okay, yeah, what, what do we got? You spell your name, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, right? Yep. So, you're gonna do this. Under the letter M, you're gonna write the letter 1. Okay. Then under the letter I, you write the letter 5. Okay. Under the letter C, you write 3. 3, okay. Your H is a six. Okay. Your A is a one. Okay. Your five is under the E. Okay. And the letter two is underneath the L. Okay. Now I want you to divide your name up as if you were drawing like a line to chop the M-I, like if you were separating it from the next part of your name. Okay. So it looks like me with the one five underneath it. Yep. Separated. And then you're gonna have C-H-A and you're gonna draw that separating line again. Okay. Like a wall. And then you're gonna have your EL on the other side of it. Okay. Now, 
look at your name. Okay. You start getting to see these three different groups of numbers, like a like a barcode that your name Michael represents. Yeah. Um, your name, if you take it apart, breaks down to Noah's grandfather's name, which is Lamech, L-A-M-E-C-H. Oh, wow. And then from there, you start seeing that you just basically the ending has been moved to the front. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're Michael. You're just a re-scrambling of this descendants in these bloodlines would put you as, you know, like, Lamech is like six generations from Cain, and his, his father is uh, Methuselah, apparently the guy who Yoda is based off of, who lives for like 800, 900 years before he passes away, and uh, is the guy who's got this, you know, shape-shifting abilities, you know, all that type of stuff, you know? Oh, wow. So, you, ever, you know, in, in, in people from like, you know, the Soviet Union or Russia, you know, all those, you know, countries, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, they'll say, oh, my name is Mikhail, M-I-K-H-A-I-L. Write that over your name, or write it rather underneath where you have the letterings. So you write M-I, okay. then it's K-H-A, K-H-A. then it's I-L. Okay. And I tell one of these guys in my school, I say, hey man, your name's Michael, right? And the guy's like, yeah, you know, and I go, okay, so do you think, you're, and he's a, a Russian Jew, the guy, I say, do you think your name is the same as Mikhail? And he goes, well, not really. My name is Michael. And I go, I kind of disagree, man. I go, your name is exactly Mikhail. There's absolutely no difference at all. And he goes, but my name is spelled different. So technically, if the alphabets are different, then it's, it's different, right? And I go, well, actually, no, it's exactly the same. And you're going to get to proof it now with your name, which makes for a very easy exercise in displaying this type of math, you know? M is one, I is five, K, which is the same as C, that's why we have like cat, oh, and people right. spell it like that, is valued at letter three. Okay. And then the H once again is six, and then the A is already it's there, right. and then your I is worth five the same way an E is worth five, uh-huh. and once again, you have the exact same code, one, five, three, six, one, five, two. Huh. That's, and that's, then, uh pretty uh that's pretty pretty interesting man i mean that's like uh you know like like sort of was it any is it called enneagrams uh the enneagram would be to divide the circle in nine okay um and that's how these guys basically script vortex map which is a lot of this is based off like this like number adding where um I started learning this, I, I, I read Alistair Crowley for like, you know, 20 years and like yeah. I never had a really strong breakthrough on decoding language by numeric value. And then I heard a lecture by a guy who said he discredited all contracts on planet Earth by doing so mathematically, saying that they were all written in the wrong um, format, that they were all written in adverb, verb, adverb, verb, which made them like a big run on, no, 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 sign your name, no, like non-existent contract. And apparently, this was why we had our mortgage bubble burst, was that this guy was like the whistleblower in that department. How much truth there is to that, I don't know, but it put me on the quest to want to learn more, that this guy is giving lectures and getting paid to do speeches about this, and that the government actually gains from his knowledge as much as they suffer from it. And then on that process of trying to learn language like that, I had tried to do this years earlier with my Crowley studies, but didn't have no one to coach me. I couldn't break through any further than 
my own intuitions, which were just my guesstimates. You know, they had value to me and nobody else. I couldn't compare them to anything else. And then I hear this guy talk who's apparently a federal judge and is, you know, a high-level Freemason and all this type of stuff, and he's letting the cat out of the bag about all this extraterrestrial contact and contracts being voided on planet Earth and the whole place being run by the pharaoh of Egypt still for the last 9,000 years. And I'm just like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Like, like how am I so oblivious to all this, you know? And then from there, I start setting out to learn more. And this is what, like, made me encounter, like, the Freescale Energy guys. And then I started encountering guys like Marty Leeds, who was the first guy I've ever encountered in all my years of studying, who actually let the cat out the bag and said, listen, this is what the exact English number code is for the alphabet. And this is how you decode words. Now... Just go and do your own research on your own time, and you're going to see a magic be born out of it that will mathematically prove to you that you've been lied to about a lot of things and that there's a magic awaiting that trumps everything you've been lied to about. So don't be upset what you're going to have to give away, which is what you were lied to, the lies you were given. What you get to be given when you're set free is everything in the living universe and to connect to everything in the living universe that has come before, during, and will come after us. And, you know, I, I, I made a few phone calls to my friends after like, you know, I, my studies really progressed, you know. I had some breakthroughs after like watching Santos Bonacci on astrotheology and listening to Jordan Maxwell and Michael Sarian for like, you know, I wanna say probably a few hundred hours of lecture time where like, you know, even my wife will say like, you sit in the garage and listening to these people speak for like eight hours at a time like don't you think you've had enough and I'm like nah you know like I don't know what they're talking about so like apparently I got a lot to catch up on <laughs> I need to like listen to these guys you know well you know what's interesting is like when you, when you grab like a regular person on the street and you say that you're into the occult they think that you're you know it's like Satan worshipping yeah know, like totally black magic guy but <laughs> the reality is like occult just means hidden knowledge yeah, for sure, man. You know, and it's like, that's basically what all this occult study is, is trying to figure yeah. out the sort of key to unlock, like, the, the hidden truths behind all this stuff, you know? Totally. Yeah. Um, there's some amazing people out there releasing the, um, the math to what was being said in the occult over all these years, whether, you know, whether it's a guy like Alistair Crowley, like, releasing pure gems and pure truth mired with a lot of like evil acts surrounding it as like talismans and barriers to keep many of the heathens away from even learning that stuff just by being afraid superstitiously of his actions which are really just protections against the information you know what I mean yeah um once once you 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 penetrate and tap into this stuff like you just just change your life and you go okay I, I get it now like all this stuff is just like a big diversion and then while people are saying, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't get involved in this, like, like, like you said, like, they think the occult's about killing cats and, like, you know, we want to kill our parents and some type of ridiculousness like that. It's insane, you know? Like, I, I went and lived with Morbid Angel for a month and a half on the Covenant tour. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, this is, like, I get out of high school. My girlfriend I'm dating, like, um, my, who's my wife right now, actually, Christian, she goes back to Brazil or for like a year of like uh, being like an exchange student here and then as soon as she gets on a plane home I get to jump on tour with Morbid Angel and go live with these guys and then I go live with these guys and I'm expecting like you know like some like 
really outlandish shit, bro. Like, just to be honest, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, some like really like occult, ritualistic like lifestyle and like very dark and like very like new things. And instead, I encountered just like domesticated rednecks, bro, who like do the same stuff we do: hang out, play the guitar, get fucked up. Like that, love their mommy, love their toys when they were kids, <laughs> have yeah. their favorite heavy metal bands that they look up to, like like they those guys are rock stars too, and at the end of the day, complain and whine like little bitches when they're fucking upset. <laughs> and I was like, wow, man. So like, I guess evil kind of like is in the eye of the beholder. I was like, if you looked at these guys, you'd swear they were here to like possess your town and like, you know, kill your newborn baby, and then you find out that they're like just a bunch of, you know average people with long hair and that just happens to be how they make their check and they have all the same human flaws as everybody else they have the majority of the same loves as everybody else and it's just all like I want to say like smokes and mirrors man but you know they, they definitely uh, like there's there's some um, like the, the lyrics and whatnot. I mean they're, they, you know, they, they've paid attention to like a lot of you know the sort oh, of no. cult ideas these and, guys are very learned yeah. on the occult but I want to say, like, as far as, like, how you may watch a horror movie and see how a cult operates, that they're always, like, sacrificing somebody. They're okay. always killing something. They're, they're always scheming. That They're always burning candles. And they're always doing this type of crazy shit. Like, like you just don't do that all the time. You know what I mean? It's like, like you're in a, like, you played in many ba- with many famous bands over the years. At some point, you're like, I'm not asking that dude for his autograph, even if he's fucking famous and I love his records. He'll respect me more if I don't ask him for his autograph. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that, definitely. You know yeah. what I mean? And, like, it's, like, the same lesson, bro. It's the same thing. I'm, like, I want to say, like, these heavy metal lessons allowed for me to have a comfortable entry into jiu-jitsu because, you know, jiu-jitsu is extreme, and then I, I'm coming in from, like, an extreme heavy metal band and being around all this, like, wild shit, you know? Um, And then as I meet Henzo, and he's, like, asking me, like, what I do, and I'm telling him, like, oh, I play in a band and all this stuff. He's thinking, all right, cool, I could hear, like, you know, stories about like you know after show hangouts and all types of like rock star stuff and like you know this guy probably you know got some cool stories to tell and like to share and like i i, I think about like my my metal experience as a as a kid don't don't talk to the animals about what they do just go do go hang out with them and talk about the other shit they do like when they're not doing the shit they're known for you know yeah and then from there, like, I got along really well with Trey Azadoth and Dave Vincent when people said that they were, like, really uptight guys. Um, I got along really well with Henzo out the gate. And I had to, like, sit next to him despite many people being starstruck. I was like, listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm blown away by this dude. That's why I'm here. And I'm giving up my life to do jujitsu because of him. But I also know how to behave around the guy where I don't want to creep him out, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. I, like, like, people do this shit, bro, to Marcelo, to Henzo, oh, yeah. and, like, all yeah. these type of guys. They almost like stalkers where like, you know, everyone's gonna have a little magic in their eyes, almost like you you met your, the, the person you wanna fall in love with, you know? And uh, I'm sure we've all looked at our jujitsu teachers like that at some point. But like, for some people, like, it just gets too creepy, you know? <laughs> nah, totally, I can see that, man. Do you, uh, you, ever, do you ever drop by the Academy of Train over there, like every now and then, or? You know? What is that, Henzo's in yeah, Manhattan? Yeah, Henzo's in Manhattan, you ever stop yeah, in there? And- in the for the last year that I was working on my DVD, I caught two days up at Henzo's in the city, and I didn't compete for the first time in 2014 since 2005. 
since 2000 and it was seven actually i have fought every single major ibjjf event like gi and no gi like pan ams no gi world championships no gi pan am with the gi world championships with the gi and then like a couple like local ibjjf events like i did this like religiously from like 2007 to 2013 i think i missed like three events just because i got hurt fighting guys like Kyle Terra and getting like my foot ripped out the socket, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, right. But uh, those are the fun battles. Um, but I, I love Henzo's place. I, I would not have anything I have in life if it wasn't for that cauldron that like melted us down to our most primal elements and just kind of allow us to like build from that all the garbage gone, you know what I mean? But most of the garbage you see is in your mind about, about like life and about learning and about sharing and stuff like that. Because jujitsu, at the end of the day, like, is gonna is gonna teach you like hard love, um, and how to have really kind love. Like, you got to share your information for the guy to be good to give you the proper challenge so that you can a while. You know, it's like it's such a true solvent koala relationship, bro, of expansion and contraction when you really have a good training in jujitsu. You know what I mean? If you show up to the academy thinking it's about having a hard training day and fighting, I'd say it's only a mindset if like you have a tournament coming up and that's your specific workout of the day to go fight and go do that. But it can't be that all the time. You're a student of the arts, the sciences. You're being creative, you know, like you're learning, you're thinking, and then you're creating. And then as, you know, jujitsu guys, maybe at some point you're out in the public performing and adding a fourth step to this process, you know? Yeah, also, I found that a lot of a lot of the learning really happens after your training, like when you're tired, you know, you're after you're yep. you're exhausted, and you watch, you, you continue to watch like the next session, you know, or the next guys out yep. there rolling, and you pick up little things when your mind is open to that kind of stuff, you know. For sure, man, and you gotta like train tired. Everybody's tough in the beginning, but like when you want to leave, and someone else fresh shows up, and the guy needs a training partner, be be that guy's like tool for him to like just do his business on you and just hang out in there and survive and you'll really fight better according to the grid than to just fight like a cowboy you know what I mean yeah uh, that's what I mean about like the jujitsu man and like um, we were mentioning earlier on about these like lines on planet earth and these lines on the human body like when you get acupuncture right and these magnetic lines are where like all the metals in on the planet and the humans are interacting and taking place between and for me that's where the real ex- the real existence is happening for all of us is in the electromagnetism because without that none of us would, would really be here there'd be no force animating us so that's where all the magic is happening like like I had this talk with my, with my jiu-jitsu students I show them this code like I show you on the paper over there right yeah and then I tell the guy this oh, you got a calculator over there um not handy no okay this is it's easy, Matt, to, to see, you know? Like, uh, if you write out the name Jesus, right? Who they say is the son of God. You do uh, J-E, the J would be four, the E is five, the S is six, the U is six, and the other S is six. And you get four, five, six, six, six. Yeah. Which adds up to 27. Okay. Yeah. And then what happens is the son our sun in outer space is 864,000 miles wide. It would make pi this from the circumference to the diameter 
432,000 miles. And if you do four times five times six times six times six, you get 4,320. And you start seeing that encoded in these names and these religions. Oh, wow. Is astrotheology, which is the basis of all this stuff. So I tell my students like this, like, okay, look, you know, you, you say you're here passionate to learn jujitsu and that you emptied your mind before you came into the room. And I have to call your bluff and say that you're full of shit on that part of it. You're in the room and you're here to train jujitsu and you're tough and you're going to perform well. But you, you can't really empty your mind. And the guy's like, what do you mean by that? And I go, well, if you don't understand what's happening beneath the language that we use and hold ourselves to with life or death contracts globally and within the whole universe as we know it, how can you say you know what even problem you're getting into and how to solve it? If the words you use completely deceive you and work against you that you don't even know the math behind them. Your, your understanding is your opinion. That shit don't count. The math of facts, you know what I mean? Like, and once you start altering your mind to see things this way, it's like you start becoming a different species of human way. Like you start using a different part of your brain specifically to analyze a problem and see what is going on beneath the surface so you can have understanding. Then from there, like things change where I would never have been able to put out the DVD that we released, Mastering the Guillotine, where the mathematics for it was so tight, unless I encountered all these physicists talking and used their models conceptually applied to jujitsu and then saw where these patterns and synchronicities were taking place and symmetries being broken the same way, where I was like, wow, I can see modern physics and this math taking place in a jiu-jitsu classroom, in all these positions, and are able to correct moves that I've never been taught how to formally correct, but know how to correct like properly now, according to like knowing the grid is there and how I believe this grid is working. And you know, we get these jujitsu ju 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 positioning and opportunity to do it from our teachers and all of our classmates and students, but there's so much room right now to help define for the future. What is the best way to practice jujitsu and actually comprehend this sport? And my idea, like when I, you know, for like my mastering the guillotine, when I have to do some articles, is to really change the face of martial arts. And when people talk about it, oh, I do martial arts for self-defense. And my understanding now after doing all this language skill and like seeing the math underneath everything, is that self-defense is fucking stupid, bro. Because self-defense means that you're defending yourself, meaning that you didn't perceive your threat properly. When we want to build life from scratch, we call it artificial intelligence. The only time artificial intelligence becomes a problem is when it becomes too smart and they say it can perceive a threat because it becomes aware first. They don't say a robot can defend itself. They say when they're artificial intelligence becomes aware is when the problem begins for everything else because it can perceive everything else then as a direct threat against its own safety thinking that it's alive like a person you know what I mean right right yeah, so if we teach martial arts to people as self-awareness not self-defense you're preparing their mind for perception first that means they're going to have a bigger perception in life that means you're going to have a bigger consciousness in life that means you're going to be able to solve problems in a different fashion in life. Not have a smaller perspective, which is a narrow vision in life, 
and a narrow consciousness, which makes you narrow-minded and you know closed through belief and all this type of stuff, how are you really going to problem-solve when the crunch time comes? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's that's intense, man. Because it's uh, yeah, because I mean, if you're if you're defending yourself, it's already it's already sort of too late, really. You too know late. what I mean? There's a there's a science show that was on TV. It says like we're gonna get like the best guys who think they do like whatever you know forms of security work, and they get like these Mossad guys, like you know dudes do like Krav Maga, and like you know yeah. those guys think they're like the baddest motherfuckers out there because. They do moves you can't really practice. No, you can't practice like, death strikes. You, know, you can't train that like 100%. You know? Yeah, so the guys are like, I don't have to worry about passing the guard, bro, doing like all these tactics. I just rip out your eye and like, you know, throw it on the floor and rip your heart out mobile ram style and then you die. And, you know, I'm like Tom Cruise, like part eight and shit. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, one of the things there's a, there's a guy named uh, Sam Sheridan who I've read. He's got three books out and, um, I think I've heard his name before. Yeah, actually, he interviews uh, Henzo in one of them. It's called uh, The Fighter's Heart, The Fighter's Mind. Those are those first yes. two. Yes, yes. And he has a new one called The Disaster Diaries. <laughs> and that one is about just, like, surviving, like, in some sort of apocalypse or whatever. And yeah. he talks about how, like, the way stress affects people and how, like, you know, just I'm specifically going to talk about Krav Maga, where you're, you're not training, like, these death strikes or whatever, eye gouges at 100%. Like, you know, like when you roll jiu-jitsu, you're 100%. You're going... Yeah, exactly, man. You know, but when you're yeah. you training Krav Maga, you're not really in a life-and-death situation. You're not really going full clip, so you can't really predict in, like, a real situation how the hell you're going to, you know, deal, yeah. with, deal with it, you know? I don't want to say this much. The guys who are in a high level of training... In all grappling art forms, be it Krav Maga, you know, Russian wrestling, American wrestling, Sambo, Judo, like, there's bad dudes out there that can, like, defend any style. But I want to say it's really, like, the low-level minions from, like, the Krav Maga movement that have a very false sense of security. The guys that are doing security work are hardened killers who do this stuff for real. Yeah. And it is fully lethal, and there's no arguing that shit at all. Just so in case anybody's listening out there, like, I have full respect for those type of tactics. Yeah. And in that venue, it's an absolute must-know-how, you know? But I want to say for the average altercations that are going to take place, you do have to suffer the repercussions on a civilian level for your actions. And at what point can you solve a problem easily than have to rip somebody's face off and shit down their neck? And have to deal with the legal repercussions of that and the karmic repercussions of that type of stuff when it could be kind of like solved in a much easier fashion with less energy and less collision and all that type of fanfare attached, you know? No, I totally agree with that. And that's like why even, even you know, striking, like if you're in a, in a street situation, it's probably not the best idea to like try to like, you know, like round kick someone in the head or, you know, or, <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? You're probably better off trying to either find a way out of the situation without having any violence or do some sort of submission on them. And that way no one's, you know, going to get brain damage or fall mm-hmm. and hit their head or any of that sort of stuff, you know? Totally. At the end of the day, man, I don't want to fight with nobody. Yeah. I'm having my own experiences in jujitsu where I'm trying to stretch and bend my mind and be put into different pressures the way different elements are put under pressure within the earth or out of space 
just to see what type of new substances form from it. Like you're a new person after you train and you're hardened from it and enlightened from it. But like, I'm not looking to go get into a violent situation with anybody. And for me, the more I train jujitsu and can ease my mind that I can be in more control of a physical situation and also recognize when I absolutely can't be in control. You know, like, should I be hard on myself mentally if I'm having a fight, Buchecha, in a street fight, and he <laughs> totally kicks the shit out of me and, like, violates my body? Should I lament for the rest of my life and be scarred eternally where I, I can't hold my head up high? Or should I go, all right, listen, man, like, I spent my whole life, tra- 20 years doing jiu-jitsu. Um, I could fight dudes at the highest level of my weight group. This guy is 100 pounds bigger. So he beat the shit out of me and, and had his way with me and subjected me to whatever type of evils he felt like subjecting me to. I, I, at that point, you could say like there's like a limit to what you can and can't control in life. You know what I mean? It's like, do you have a ticking time bomb in you for like a genetic disease? Do you administer a vaccine that has an expiration date that after 25 years you come down with some crazy disease? Like, you just can't tell with some of these things, you know? Yeah. Well, Joe, you know, I'd like to thank you, man, for being part of this. And, uh, you know, this is the uh, the kickoff episode for the new year. And, awesome. um, you know, I'd like to wish you luck in this new endeavor with, uh, you know, Capizzi BJJ. And, um, you know, and also uh, congratulations on the DVD coming out. Oh, thank you, man. And for me, I just want to thank uh, all the guys out there who, who may listen to this and feel like they can gain anything. I would say that if you are listening and want some extra research material to go look for, go listen to guys like Jordan Maxwell or Michael Sarion, T-S-A-R-I-O-N, or go listen to Marty Leeds and do his presentations on the language and the alphabet. Um, There's so many amazing humans out there breaking down what's going on in the matrix in space, beneath ground, on the surface, all the two-faced stuff, all the smoke and mirror stuff, and, you know, you just you have to have this. Otherwise, if you don't dig deep and go go on the underground for the understanding, you're really gonna get served really really bad stuff in life. And it's like you know, Dave Vincent breaks this down back in the day. He's like, you know, you could go in with the cafeteria mentality and put your plate out, or you can go out there and be like, nah, man, I don't want this. I'm gonna pick and choose what I want. Like this 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 is for these other guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. From there, life just gets so much more beautiful when you could like see that there's people out there exposing the past and the future for us and showing how how much amazing breakthroughs are there despite all the, the nonsense we're subject to all the time, you know? Is there any uh, any particular places people can uh, get in touch with you or check out what you got going on, like your websites, uh, Twitter you know, addresses, anything like that? Yeah, you know? uh, the easy way to get a hold of me is... Uh, Facebook is easy, jo- uh, Joseph Capizzi on Facebook. Uh, I ha- also have NYC BJJ on YouTube where I post a lot of videos for jiu-jitsu, sometimes some music stuff, some fights out of my archives. I film a lot of jiu-jitsu matches. I got a lot of stuff I'm going to pull out for the public, seeing like you know guys who became like, famous teachers now as I'm going through rank. Um, I have NYCBJJ.com. I also have JosephCapizzi.com, but that website's not prepared for the public yet. And... Um, you know, when I do, they'll be out there and be available with a lot of content and just trying to make people think, man, you know, I think a lot of guys are, are busy doing and stressing right now, but no one's really trying to like observe and, and think. And that's like the main formula for being like 
you know, I want to say successful in being creative is you learn, you think, and then you create. At some point, you have to realize that what I don't know, I got to go learn. And you got to think about what you learn. And then it's your responsibility to create from that so the next guy can take it a step further and that you also take it a step further. And there, you know, everybody gives back to each other. All right, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It's awesome. Thank you for having me, bro. Anytime you want me back, just let me know. Yeah, we, there's a lot. I, I feel like there's a lot we didn't even talk about. So, yeah, we've got to have part two of this conversation. For sure, man. And, you know, we'll have to bust out a, a, a live meeting one day where we could, like, bust out some, like, some science in person and uh, it would blow your mind, I think, you know? Yeah, totally.